0: listeners, I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You. For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Leslie Lair, the prize-winning author of seven books. Leslie has penned novels and essays and screenplays, but her newest release is a different kind of work, a pop culture memoir entitled A Boobs Life, How America's Obsession Shaped Me and You. A Boobs Life explores the reality of life in a female body from an author whose own experiences range from breast enhancement to surviving breast cancer. Leslie, after reading your book, I feel like I will never look at my own breasts or anyone else's for that matter in the same way. I am so glad and fortunate to welcome you to my podcast. Thank you so much. And that
1: actually is my goal. I think the way America and all of us in turn look at our breasts has these insidious effects that we don't realize. So if we can look at ourselves and our breasts and each other a little bit differently, then the book is a success.
0: Well, I think the book does it. It shifts my own personal paradigm and my paradigm in terms of the cultural impact of this body part. You know, A Boob's Life, it was selected as a Good Morning America must read and People Magazine put it in its best new books category and entertainment tonight included your book in its recommendations for books by trailblazing women changing the world. And that last honor actually shared space with Michelle Obama's Becoming. So quite a high honor. I want to ask you though, why do you think your book is having such a big impact?
1: Well, I gotta tell you, that last one gives me goosebumps. I just can't get over that. And Glennon Doyle's on the other side is like, whoa. Um, I think because exactly what you referred to at the beginning, I think we don't think about our boobs. We take them for granted. And yet they truly affect not only how women live in this world. Um, You know, you can't change biology, but the way the culture treats our biology really affects all of our lives. Not only day to day, every morning when we hike up a bra or don't wear a bra or push them up or hide them or show them or, you know, all those kind of choices that we make to politics and the roles that women have and the way men look at women and the way that we have to survive in those ways. And even the way we parent and role model for our children, the way disease is treated. So, uh, you know, breasts are just a huge thing and people just giggle, you know, it's boobs or breasts. And so that's right on.
0: Yeah. Well, they are certainly always there right up front. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, to this reader, A Boob's Life, it defies categorization because it's certainly a memoir in that you, I would say, generously share your own story. But the book is also loaded with national history from the 1960s women's liberation movement up to the Me Too movement and beyond. And on top of all that, somehow, I don't know how you did this, but the book manages to be funny in large swaths. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you almost has to have that undercurrent of funny, I guess. But given how much ground you cover, both humorous and quite serious, I wanted to ask you, what was your vision for the book when you first started writing it or how did it
1: evolve? Well, the very first night did happen exactly as the book opens when I realized how obsessed I was with breasts. Actually, my husband accused me of that. And I was like, no way, I'm a feminist. I can't be obsessed with breasts. And um, I first thought, you know, I can track my entire life by my breasts from being a little girl and wanting them and growing up in the Midwest with cheerleaders and beauty queens, and then, you know, coming out to California and showing them and hiding them and and nursing with them and being totally flat. And my mom thinking I would never get a man if I didn't have breasts. And then, you know, my whole first marriage and then getting remarried and getting breast cancer, I realized I could track my whole life by my breasts. And I really felt like, you know, when I tried to find books about it, there were a lot about breast cancer, a lot about body image. You know, if you Google breasts, you'll find chicken recipes, you'll find health things and toxic milk and breast cancer. If you Google boobs, it's just porn and sex. And so I thought what I wanted to do was show what it's like to have breasts over a woman's lifetime and examine my personal experience kind of as an every woman in relation to the wider lens of our nation, and then show how the biology is something we can't change, but the more that we're aware of how we react to it could help change the culture. Well, you
0: know, I also appreciate the dichotomy you shared a few moments ago when you were speaking that it's not mutually exclusive to be a feminist and to be somewhat obsessed with breasts. So it's nice to know we don't have to just be in certain categories.
1: That's kind of the point of the book. It's like women get categorized between either you're sexy or you're sacred, you know, you're the Madonna or the whore. And these are fake divides. Women are very complex. And we also live in this country where beauty is a huge value for women. And it always has been that way. It always will be that way. Now, hopefully we can open this up to have more kinds of beauty appreciated, but for breasts, it's always been, especially in this country since the sixties, the shape of our breasts before we have children, when we're teenagers is the ideal shape. And yet this is an organ, you know, we're the only mammals who have developed breasts our entire life. It's not a medical specialty. You know, It's such a weird thing that men look at them so fast and that they're so shameful that funerals put bras on dead women. I mean, so there's just so much going on that um, women are far more complex and I think it's okay to be beautiful and feel beautiful and want to be beautiful and also want to be smart and accomplished and do important things. And until we learn that we can do all these things and not sacrifice one for the other, no one's going to be happy. And the problem now, I think, is that we kind of have to be both smart and pretty. You know, when I was growing up, you were one or the other. But now I think if we could just all chill and not judge ourselves and not judge each other, but kind of rejoice in what we are and what we have and what we can do, then things will all get along better. And even men will have less pressure. And for me, boobs are a solution to a lot in the culture.
0: Would you mind reading a short excerpt from the book, maybe
1: just a paragraph or two, but for whatever reason you particularly like, Well, I'm gonna just read the first paragraph. Uh, Let me set you up a little bit. Um, It was 2015, and my husband and I, newish husband, who I had married after I got a boob job and had two grown kids, and a year into our marriage, I got breast cancer. Was very sick, so it was this ironic thing, completely unrelated. And no, I didn't have the BRCA gene, but I had had my boobs then redone, and then radiation had messed them up, but. We moved into my dream house, this condo overlooking the ocean in Malibu. And honestly, it was a promise being made to me if I survived, I'd get to look at the ocean. You know, we actually don't live there anymore, but we lived there for three years. And the first night we moved in, we were going to have this big date night and it was very exciting. And that's how it started. I got out of the shower for date night and here's how the book started. My nipples are cross-eyed. I see it clearly in the bathroom mirror the moment I step out of the shower. As steam clouds the view, I wave my towel and pray it was an optical illusion. No, they're definitely pointing in different directions as if embarrassed to meet my eyes. Or maybe this is payback. The truth is my breasts have been loathed and loved, suckled and stuffed, radiated and reconstructed. They have doomed one marriage and inspired another. Yet every step of the way, they've had the finest treatment in America. By now, shouldn't they be perfect? So that's how the book opens. How can you not
0: want to read more after that? (laughs) You also wrote a modern love essay, and it was just exquisite. Thank you. A little bit about that same situation, you know, being newly married and then having breast cancer intrude early on in that marriage. And I have to say, that essay was so powerful and probably had one of the most amazing last lines of any essay I've ever read. I hope everybody seeks
1: that essay out. What was it called? It's called How I Got to Hear. And um, Katie Couric actually narrated it on NPR. So you can hear the audio recording if you Google it. I have to tell you, it's the only thing I planned. I did not keep a journal and I was sick. I was never going to write about it. Living about it was worse, you know, living through it. And so I just thought, okay, I'm just going to write this one essay Um, And New York times picked up for modern love. And I had had a new novel out at the time that I struggled to get out during treatment. And I thought, this is it, I'm done. And then years later, (laughs) when I, that came out, I think in 2013, it did kind of go viral. So you can, you can read it. And it's also on my website, but it was four years later when I was finally still taking medication, you know, there's a lot of phases of breast cancer treatment. But um, when I got out of the shower, I was like, Oh, God, I have to write about my boobs now. (laughs) So it's just a part of it, but it's just part of the journey. And that article was like, okay, I can write about it. It's like, I didn't want to write a breast cancer book. You know, I'm sick of it. I get sick of it every October. And then I think, wait a minute, if I can save one person's life or make someone not angry when they look at themselves in the morning. If you ask me
0: and probably everybody else on the planet that's read the book, this is the quintessential book group book. It was really striking to me. You don't so much provide answers about difficult issues, but you certainly present the questions. For example, this idea of whether it's a good or bad thing or neither for women, or I should say many women, to want to feel pretty. And I know you have daughters and I have daughters, and that's a tough one to put in perspective. What are your thoughts on that in terms of this emphasis on wanting to feel pretty? Is it is it okay to want that? Should we tell our daughters it doesn't matter or where should we fall on that?
1: I think that this is one of those complex issues that there's not any wrong answer. I think that a lot of times we cling to our beauty out of insecurity because we feel like that's all we have, or that's what we need to have, or that's what we're judged on. And surely in our culture, we are judged on it. So one of my goals for this book is really for the women to stop judging ourselves so heavily. And then I think that will allow us to stop judging other women. So heavily, and then the competition won't be so scary. You know, like when I was little, people were pretty normal until I mean, when I was tiny in the 60s, for most of the country, TV was brand new. Suddenly, there's live women on TV. And at the same time, the advertising agency Madison Avenue, you've always seen Mad Men, it wanted to draw eyeballs. Men buy things, and their eyeballs are drawn to boobs. So all the women (laughs) on TV had big boobs. And at the same time, scientists invented formula for babies. So suddenly all the men were pushing women to feed our babies with not our breast milk. And at the same time, Hugh Hefner started Playboy and suddenly it was okay to have magazines of naked women in your house. And so this idea of women having to look a certain way and certain breasts and be white and be Christian and be all these things and be not disabled. And I think that Real feminism is when all of us are treated fairly and all of us stop judging ourselves and kind of work together. So like you said, with your daughters, my daughters, my nieces, my daughters look completely different. I have one who's more on the spectrum of the pretty American blonde and one who's more of the brunette curvy woman. And they both have completely different issues of how they look and how they are beautiful. And I want really both of them to be beautiful. And I have to battle my own discomfort when I feel like one of them isn't looking as good as she could, or one of them is. But then I remember growing up and my mother was like, put on some lipstick. You know, it's like that was her value of beauty. So for me, I I think healthy is really important. These are important subjects to discuss. I don't think there are perfect answers, but there's certainly great things that book clubs can talk about. But I got to tell you, when I started working on this book, Everybody I mentioned it to either thought, oh, I don't care about boobs. My first agent my, at the time was like, she said, quote, I'm a flat-chested granola Berkeley girl. I don't care about boobs. And all I could think is, wow, you're so in denial of this body part that boobs really mean a lot for you to feel that way. And I actually had to get a new agent. And then everyone I talk to now, I say, oh yeah, it's a book about boobs. And everybody wants to tell me their boob story. We all have a boob story.
0: Well, speaking of boob stories, your story is being developed as a comedy series by Salma Hayek for HBO Max. That is so exciting. And so I wanted to ask you, what is it like imagining your life as a series and a comedic one at
1: that? Yeah, well, it's pretty amazing. it's It's right up there with being next to Michelle Obama and Glennon Doyle with entertainment tonight. But I mean, it is pie in the sky. You never know if these things are going to happen. But she's really smart, and she actually connected with the book before I even got a publisher. And so that's one thing. It's like, I have to not think about it because what if it doesn't happen or what if it's weird? But, you know, of course, at first I wanted to write it and they're like, no, we need an approved writer. So to be an executive producer means I will have some sort of, you know, say, not necessarily control. But what I also have to feel is two other things. One is that the book is my baby, right? I said everything I wanted in the book. So whatever happens with the show And they feel like it's a show that could go on for many seasons, you know, once it takes hold, but it's tricky to get it down. There's so many elements of the book. And as you said, it will be a comedy. But the other thing is, as we get closer, yeah, it is going to be me. They're doing my life. And in fact, with the contracts, it's tricky. It's like, no, 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 you don't have life rights. It's just about my boob life. It's like, what's on the page? You know, you can't take other things. I think your boobs need their own agent. You
0: know I mentioned earlier that Abu's life is in large part a memoir, a deeply personal memoir at that. And so I wanted to ask you something that I'm sure a lot of aspiring memoirists struggle with and that's how do you or how did you address the reality that when you share your story with such candor by necessity you're also
1: sharing other people's stories? Well, that is the $10 million question because I actually had tried to write a memoir years earlier that actually dovetailed with a couple of things I mentioned in here that had happened in my family. And I quickly had the kibosh and too many people were hurt. And a lot of people have the feeling of F them. It's like, it's not your story, but I want to get along with my family. So I'm kind of careful and essentially I did, you know, people change their mind a lot. But I, I have, there's so many things to say about this. One is, if you're going to use a real person, make the women beautiful and make the guy really well endowed, and they pretty much will let you get away with a lot. The other thing is, um, I did allow my daughters to change their names, and one of them did use a different name in it. And then also, there's some sensitive material because during the book, my first husband uh, died by suicide. He was a Vietnam vet, and That I did bring in because I, he was pretty large in the book and actually some, there was some issues in my first marriage that are discussed in terms of my breasts and they get pretty dark. And I was very careful about how I described my side of it and nothing that was, you know, rumored or, or an idea, but things that actually happened, um, that there could be no denying. And I did talk to a couple of lawyers Um, And then once he was no longer with us, it was still tricky and sensitive. And I did run those sentences by my daughters and just make sure they were okay with that. I think that when they're sensitive things, you can run things by people, but you can't let them see anything until you're done or they will shape your work. And it's just a real tricky thing. And I work a lot as you do with other writers, sometimes trying to help people decide if they're going to write a memoir or a novel. And there are pluses and minuses to both. And so you have to decide, are you willing to know that the person on the page isn't really you? It's a character that you create, and yet it is your story, and it's how you see your story. But when other people are involved, it's very tricky business, and you may choose not to do it, or you may choose it, and then you have to deal with the fallout.
0: Let's switch gears to another area of expertise, which is I know that you're a writing consultant, and you're an expert in story structure. So can you offer one or two things that a lot of aspiring novelists
1: get wrong when they start out structuring their narratives? You know, the steps of creating a character-driven novel and how you create plot without dying in the middle has to do with the strength of your premise, making sure it's an underdog who has some sort of challenges to get through and not just a documentary, you know, of here's what happens next. And so for me, narrative drive is really important. and. I have been at Barnes & Noble with many debates with other writers. You know, you've heard the term "pantser" or a plotter, and I am definitely a plotter. I think that if you have an outline of what's going to happen in a story and know that structurally it's going to work, then you can do whatever you want in between. And things can change, and they might not work, and you might add things, and you're going to do a lot of drafts anyway, but just to write and go nowhere you might find you're committed to all these words on the page and there's holes in your plot that you cannot fix. Mm. And so I always am a person who works with clients to figure out is your premise strong enough, which story is going to work and how to write it in a way that you're still excited all the way through, you know, because you have the framework for the building and then you can decorate it however you want.
0: Leslie, when I visited your website and I read the ways that you can help writers achieve their goals. You listed everything from helping us hook readers from page one, which of course is essential to helping writers strengthen their plots or polish their prose. But I love that the last thing you addressed was that you can help us enjoy the process more. And that in and of itself is such an important aspect of our writing life.
1: Oh yeah. It's like, I have this problem going to the gym. I are exercising. I hate exercise. I mean, I was an athlete growing up, so and I like to hike. I like to do some things, but I hate exercising. But I like being done when I leave the gym. And I don't know how I've worked out. But the thing is, with writing, it's not like you do it every day. When you finish a book, or if you're lucky enough to get it published, which is really the, that's a whole different issue. Selling a book versus writing it, you've got to enjoy the journey because that's what the bulk of your time is taking up. That's why you're not hanging out with your family or watching TV or doing other stuff. And for me personally i hate writing the first draft it's like i'll structure it all out i'll use all my note cards i'll use you know software if i'm using blockbuster or something but i i definitely i hate the first draft because it nobody cares it could be anything once you have that down or have a plan or a structure then it's like you got all the pieces of the puzzle and you can really enjoy moving the puzzle around and filling them in and coloring them so you really have to enjoy writing if anyone says i want to be a writer i'm like Don't, please don't, unless you really have to, really want to, because it's a lot of work. And the payoff at the end isn't always big. It isn't always in existence. So you have to enjoy the experience of it.
0: Leslie, I have one last question for you, which is if you were to write a six word memoir, what would it be?
1: This was really hard. I listened to your other people and six, (laughs) and I was going to say, no, I can't do that. And then I realized that, you know, I, I do write. I'm, I consider myself a novelist. In fact, I'm working on another novel now. But I find that um, there's a real pattern. In fact, when I was sick, I was uh, at a conference and someone was interviewing me as if I was going to die. And this person had read all my books, and I was like, "Whoa!" But I, it was the first time I could see a real pattern to my storytelling, and I realized that what I'm really doing is, and in then six words: exploring the challenges of contemporary women, and that's what I do in my work. Well, it's certainly what a boob's life does. Yeah. Would you read it one more time? Exploring the challenges of contemporary women.
0: I think that operative word is exploring for most writers because we write in order to learn to discover something, not just to reflect what we already know, but to explore something we're curious about. So, exactly, I think that memoir would apply to a lot of people. Well, look at you did it, Leslie. Yeah. See, you were gonna, you were gonna <laughs> balk and not do your little <laughs> assignment, and you came up with. <laughs> Perfect memoir.
1: That's how it works for all writing. As you know, sometimes we hit that wall, we hit the wall, and then we give up and then we would wake up and go, oh, no wait, I can do it.
0: Leslie, I want to thank you for your time and for writing A Boob's Life. It certainly makes me appreciate all the more this much-nicknamed body part, and I really do hope everybody reads it and gets it for a Christmas gift to share with their daughters and spouses and family members. It is such an important and an engaging and a truly eye-opening book. So thank you so much for being
1: here and giving me this time. Oh, thank you. What a wonderful discussion we've had. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Very generous. And love your boobs. That's my message. Love your boobs.
0: (laughs) I'm already ahead of you there. (laughs) Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Leslie Lair her new release A Boobs Life, and her other writing and projects, please visit her website, leslielair.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, joaniebcole.com. In the meantime, take care. Act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.